Gene Shepard at 10 o'clock. Today's top news stories in depth with John Wingate. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of news at 11. just can't, we just can't let it, can't let it die without giving it a good kick and a you-know-what. I mean, really, uh, I think, I think we, we've just got to agree on something here, that they're probably the greatest fizzle, with the possible exception of the Nixon second administration, uh, the greatest fizzle, <laughs> quite probably, in the last quarter century has been Kohutek. Oh, do you, oh, oh, Fantastic, you know. I, I, I'm just so disappointed. I, you know, I, I would like to have seen that flaming chariot in the sky that hurled thunderbolts down in the direction of. You know, speaking of uh, Kuhutek and yeah, the whole hello, hello test. Yeah, yeah, hello. It's still working, isn't it? Never know. You know, when those cosmic rays come down and bore their way into your head. Uh, <laughs> Kuhutek, uh, of course, whenever there's any kind of a solar or uh, extraterrestrial phenomenon that occurs. The cuckoo birds begin to creep out of the woodwork. Have you noticed that? And uh, ordinarily, during uh, during ordinary walking around life, you don't notice them. They, they yeah, they wear suits, and uh, they vote, and uh, a lot of them look like, you know, you'd swear they were human beings. You know, it's it's amazing. But uh, given any kind of uh, of uh, extraterrestrial uh, orter or let's say even solar phenomena, um, instantly they're out on the street corners handing out tracts. And I, I'm keeping this for uh, for future trivia. Uh, you know, a thousand years from now, when people dig up my Shepard's famous uh, true space capsule, as opposed to the official... You know, whenever they, whenever they bury a space capsule, I was at a... Uh, 
I was at a, a an actual ceremony that, uh, well, it was the uh, it was the official dedication of a space capsule. Now, not a space capsule. Excuse me, the official dedication of a time capsule. And uh, how many of you remember the New York World's Fair? That uh, late, unlamented fiasco. You know, that was the beginning of the fiascos that we've known. It really was. It was just right in the beginning there. And uh, and I enjoyed it, except that uh, <laughs> there were a lot of curious things about it. But you recall the fair, right? All right. Uh, one day I got this uh, invitation from some official group in the fair. And uh, they were going to have this dedication of the time capsule. Apparently that's a... That's an old-time tradition. Whenever there's a World's Fair, you always lay a time capsule on posterity, whether they want it or not. You, you lay that down for them. So, uh, and, of course, the time capsule is, is supposed to tell people of the future world, the future generations, uh, just how groovy we were. You see, that's the, they're all based on that premise, which, of course, uh, has certain uh, limitations because uh, given any time in history, people are half good and half rotten. <laughs> and they tend to put only the good, or what they think is the good, in the space or time capsule, so that when people dig it up, you know, they can do, what a fantastic race of people there was there. Um, and so I was sitting in the crowd, and it was held over here in, uh, in one of the big New York, uh, hip new skyscrapers, and we were up on the 28th floor or something, a whole bunch of newsmen there, and uh, they had this time capsule set up in the front there by a stage, and it was really something. You ever seen one? You have. You've actually seen one. You actually saw it before it was put in the ground and all. Well, no, you saw it at the fair. Well, now that they had two of them, I have to. I have to really. I don't want to disillusion you, but they had two of them, Herb. One of them was used for display, uh, you know, kind of a symbolic time capsule, and the other one was the one they put in the concrete and uh, put a little put a little plaque over it or something, and. Uh, we saw the real ones. See, they, they were about to put it down. They were going to lay that down in the ground there. And uh, they had it set up in front. And they had all the stuff that they were going to put in it all laid out. It was just, just you know, all kinds of microfilm. Of course, that presupposes that the people of 5,000 years from now are going to have a microfilm projector. Uh, that, uh, you know, that's kind of uh, <laughs> it's taking a... It's taking a pretty wide uh, swath towards history. Of course, that's part of the Judaic Christian ethic that man will continue to progress and that man is on the earth to progress. This is a, a very difficult uh, concept here at this hour tonight to talk about, but nevertheless, that is one of the great basic Christian Judaic fallacies, they call it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it has much the same uh, uh, religious and uh, philosophical impact as the Chinese nail puzzle, which, of course, is more of an oriental concept, but nevertheless, I mean, by nature although the Chinese didn't invent nails. However, uh, the, the uh, problem of the, the time caps was very interesting. I'm standing there in this crowd, see, where everybody's walking around, and they gave us, uh, they gave us martinis. Uh, I remember distinctly, martinis. And, uh, I, I, you know, I like a good martini now and again, but I want to say this. If what, uh, if what was in the time capsule uh, had any relationship to the quality of the martini I was given, we're going to give the future generations a rather curious, uh, distorted view of what life in the 20th century was like. You know, it was a really bad martini. And I was with Mike, du Mike Wallace. You, you know Mike Wallace, see? And Mike Wallace and I walking around looking at this time capsule. And I, 
I finally said, you know, Mike, I, I just imagine what it would be like if uh, if uh, we, we really put a truthful time capsule in the ground, you know. Uh, <laughs> so a good cross-section of life in this time would be there. It would be for all to see. And Shepard has now started as, as I was actually... Uh, I was actually uh, impelled, I was motivated to create my own time capsule. And my own time capsule now consists of a, a very cheap and leaky file cabinet, which incidentally in itself uh, kind of says something about our time. Uh, we are living in the age of proliferating paper and records, so what better to have for a time capsule than a symbolic file cabinet uh, <laughs> where you know, things are filed? Rather than a chrome polished piece of uh, piece of business that uh, it, it doesn't really represent our time. So my old file cap's got all this stuff. See, and I'm going to make sure that 5,000 years from now they're going to know what we thought of things. For example, uh, here is the scientific knowledge of our time displayed in a tract which was given to me just two days ago while innocently standing on the street corner waiting for a bus to splash me as it went by. I was standing there waiting when uh, when a little grubby man shoved this in my hand and scurried off, shoving these in the hands of others around him. Give me a little space music. Please. It's printed in smudgy red. And it says, the opening line says, More on Comet. 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. When they shall cry, peace, peace, then cometh sudden destruction. Cometh destructive chaos is now for the first time revealed to all thinking Americans. Read it now. Kohutek, God's And the time of every great comet has always been a special time in Earth's history. And now, at long last, God's messenger has arrived to destroy the most evil society on the face of the Earth. Corrupt, rotten America. Biblical proof is on page 7. Prepare to meet thy maker, O unholy America. At long last, God's wrath shall descend upon the malefactors, the evildoers of the 20th century. He's predicting the end of the world there. That's kind of good. I'm putting this in my uh, file. I wonder what happens to those guys between comets. It's a long wait till Halley. Halley Halley's comet's going to come in 18, 17, 19, what is it, 86, something like that? 1996, 86? That's a good long wait. That's a good 13, maybe 12, 13 years. And uh, I suppose that gives them time to oil up their mimeograph machines and get everything all set for the next big onslaught of the end is coming. But uh, it's uh, this has, to me, always been one of the great fascinations uh, of... Uh, you know, walking around people, is that there is a certain population of people who believe any minute now the earth is going to end due to sin. 
It's not due to an astronomical uh, collision, which if it does occur, will of course because of be, because of sin. You know, this. I wonder if people, if these people who believe this stuff, really realize this is probably the most egotistical belief that uh, that you could conceivably uh, have. That the entire solar system is based on whether man is good or evil. Man. <laughs> I mean, all of it. Stars, sun, uh, Jupiter, Kahootek, all of this stuff is based on on uh, good or evil. And if you're really rotten, the entire solar system changes and comes and lays a goodie on you. You know, boom. <laughs> and I, I uh, that, that, uh, that uh, I think is a really fascinating concept. You know, did you ever talk to a guy who who actually went through one of these things? Well, one of the funniest. Uh, yeah, I knew an old man one time. Yeah, I'll tell you, a funny guy uh, he was, and uh, in many ways, but uh, a great funny old man, who I shall call Frank, and is it because his name was Frank actually, and uh, Frank was a fascinating old duck. To begin with, Frank was a millionaire. Uh, yes, a real bona fide, live, walking around millionaire who had earned his million. He was not a guy that inherited a lot of dough. He had worked for it, then he had earned it, and invested in one thing, and then he became a millionaire. But he did not at any point to look or talk or uh, behave like uh, your average walking around millionaire, or at least the kind of millionaires you think that you know about because you see him in the movies played by Edward Arnold, you know. Whippersnapper, not going to marry my daughter. You know, that kind of millionaire. Yeah. But uh, this, <laughs> this uh, he was real. He was a real great guy. See, at, at Frank, Frank used to come in. I remember one story Frank told, and this was uh, this was when I was working at a television station, and uh, he was a friend of one of the newscasters. And that's how I got to know him. He would come into the newsroom once in a while to, to pick this guy up, and they would go out to dinner. And I got to know old Frank. He must have been about ninety at the time, or close to it. And uh, so old Frank would come wandering into the newsroom there. And he wore this old battered gray hat that looked like it was about, oh, maybe two, three hundred years old. And he had an old gray coat. And he'd wander in. And when he would come in, he had a, had a curious habit, which uh, he never explained, actually. He would come in, and he'd have with him a bag of oranges. Yeah, a bag of oranges all the time. Big. These great big navel oranges, you know, these great big goodies, see. And as he walks into the newsroom, he would reach into his bag of oranges, this old bag he carried, that he would apparently bring it just for the newsmen and start throwing oranges to people. He'd say, here, here's your orange. You know, he'd throw an orange. And uh, <laughs> it was just this thing, you know, like, uh, who was it? Who was the guy who used to give dimes to people he would meet? Come on, who was it? Very famous guy. No, no, not W-O-R. You ain't going to get a dime out of this crowd. This is W-O-R New York. Would you please hit the money button? Your AMC dealers got the all-new mid-size car that economizes on everything but comfort. That car, the roomy 74 Matador. And another important advantage. Our 74 Matador comes with an economical six-cylinder engine as standard equipment. And consider this. Matador is the only new mid-size car backed by all the benefits of the exclusive AMC buyer protection plan which means that under normal usage and accepting tires, if anything AMC did goes wrong with your new 74 Matador in the first 12 months or 12,000 miles, we'll fix or replace it free. Come in today. Meet the unbeatable combination. 74 Matador backed by the AMC Buyer Protection Plan. 
Yeah, see your AMC dealer where you get a good deal. And a good deal more, friend. Bring it up there. Uh, yo. All right, that was nice. Very exciting. Yeah, I wonder whether these guys... Uh, the, the first question that hits me is that the people who are always predicting the end of the world... I'm going to ask a philosophical question here. Is there any... I wonder if there's anybody out there tonight who is a firm believer in the thesis that that uh, God is waiting to hurl a thunderbolt and the end of the world is nigh. <laughs> you know, the other thing, too, that, that always surprises me is that uh, these people seem to think that the, that the American society is the most evil society that ever lived. You know, this is, this is another premise uh, that is part and parcel of this, this type of thinking. You've seen these tracks, haven't you? That shows a great almost a uh, cosmic uh, lack of knowledge of other societies. I'll just leave it there. If you're curious, you ought to write to Solzhenitsyn. What's his name? <laughs> Solzhenitsyn? <laughs> have you been reading that? <laughs> they should have been, you know. But, the, you know, that's, a, that's just uh, one example, but there's dozens of others all spotted around the globe. But uh, these people are generally people who believe that America is the most evil place in the world. Of course, God is concerned with America, so he's going to destroy us, right, with, with, the, with the Kuhutek. Well, I, I'm going to ask a philosophical question here. That, uh, and here, I'm not at any point denying. See, I'm, my, my thesis is all societies are good and bad. In other words, you can't, uh, the rottenness is not just a, a product of one system. That in itself is a is a fiery remark to most people. Oh no, there's a lot of people who believe if you get the right system and elect the right guy, evil will disappear. One of the great sad human myths. <laughs> and usually they get that right guy. And unfortunately. Usually, they, that's what they mean by the man who arrives on the white horse. Oh, yes. People who are really against evil often wind up with a dictator. But, uh, yeah, their own guy. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, we're, we don't want to get into that issue. But uh, historically, that happens to have been true, whether you like it or not. But uh, the, the philosophical question I would like to ask, before we tell you about this philosophical question and pose this uh, philosophical conundrum, I would like to suggest that shopping for Harris potato chips and snack foods is a family affair. That's H-E-R-R-S. Do they pronounce it as the German hair? Her. They pronounce it her. I see. Hers always has something for someone. Well, that's probably true. I think that's true of all of us. But nevertheless, potato chips, barbecue chips, waffle chips, cheese curls, pretzels, corn chips... Everyone finds a favorite. Hers potato chips taste so good because they're made the natural way. You know, like nature makes potato chips. So uh, I would suggest that you look for hers. That's H-E-R-R-S. I don't invent the copy. There it is. Hers. That's H-E-R-R-S. Good things from the country. Get some today. Oh, can't you just see this little log cabin out there in the country where they're making the hers potato chips the way Mother Nature makes them? Well, uh, speaking of... Uh, of uh, good things to eat. Are you one of those poor unfortunates who believe that Kahutek was about to destroy Queens and you also feel that you cannot lose weight unless you give up bread? Most everyone knows that if you want to lose weight, you've got to cut down on calories. 
Lefty. That's what I heard a guy say that the other day. There's a guy lately on, on television. Uh, he's doing a tag for a movie. He keeps calling it Passaic. Passaic, New Jersey. That guy, it, it bugs me every time I hear it, Passaic. <laughs> but uh, uh, you don't have to cut down on calories, friends. Uh, you just must cut out of your diet those rich, heavy foods. This doesn't mean you have to take the bread off the table. A medium-sized grapefruit has more calories than an average slice of bread. So does oranges, apples, and many other fruits. Did you know that? The bakers of Hollywood bread have made it easier for bread lovers who wish to lose weight. They are offering Eleanor Hansberry's Calorie and Carbohydrate Guide free wherever Hollywood bread is sold. I'll ask you a, 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 a real great piece of trivia. You've heard of Hollywood bread. You've probably seen it in the stores, right? What is Hollywood bread named after? I suppose a lot of you think it's Hollywood, you know, Hollywood, right? Hollywood, California, where all the, all the movie stars and stuff. Well, most people think so. You know, they think, you know, it's Hollywood. Actually, it's named after Hollywood, Florida. <laughs> That's like uh, the New York Life Insurance Company is actually named after New York, Nebraska. And, uh, <laughs> well, all right, same same premise. How many people have heard of Hollywood, Florida? Everybody's heard of Hollywood, California. All right, that's uh, that's enough of that, friends. I mean, you know, when, you get to, when you get in the cosmic ray uh, orbit of Kahootek, your head starts going really bad. And then you probably notice that with me. Oh, yeah. Oh, cosmic rays. Does it? Yeah, the end of the world's coming. But the question I would like to ask, the question I would like to ask, and I, really, I, I, it's always intrigued me, is are the people who predict the end of the world? By the way, this particular track is already out of date. It predicted the end of the world by January 10th. Doggone it, missed it again. This this uh, same guy probably predicted it <laughs> two years ago when uh, I don't know, you know, who knows? But the. Uh, the question that I would like to ask is this. Are guys who predict the end of the world on a specific date, like January 10th, the world is going to end, are they disappointed when January 11th dawns bright and clear? Are they disappointed or relieved? That is a very good question. And it is not to be answered so lightly. Because I think a lot of these people have a secret desire to see the end of the world come. Uh-huh, and I'll tell you why they do. You know why? That the psychologists have studied this phenomenon. Uh, first of all, most of those people who believe this are themselves wallowing in guilt for one reason or another. And they like to believe that the entire rest of the country is really guilty. <laughs> you know, if you, if the, the, this is something that you always see, that the more guilty a person is, the more he tends to want to pretend that, uh, that he's only part of a vast... A sea of guilt. But the others are guiltier even than he is. I mean, that's human nature. And, and uh, of course, the guilty always want people who feel guilty. Now, I'm not saying guilty. I'm talking about people who have guilt. That doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty, mainly. People who have the guilt problems always want secretly, uh, very, very, they yearn for uh, punishment. This is a, this is a, a you know, well-documented uh, phenomenon. <laughs> they yearn for punishment. 
discovery and punishment. Now, if you will not accept your own individual guilt, but you like to believe the entire world is guilty, then you want the whole world to be punished. Whole world. And, of course, along with that, meaning you, too. There's no way. If the world is coming to an end, you're coming to an end, too. Now, the next... Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, wait a minute. Now, I'd like to point out, though, that these people tend to believe that the world will end, but not them. Because they have the revealed truth, and they are pure in heart and soul and spirit. That is correct. And uh, God is only, only going to punish the evildoers. Wherever they are, see, they can punish all the evildoers, and they personally are going to be excused on that day. You know, they get a note from teacher; they won't have to come. And uh, <laughs> at that point, they they'll be they'll be excused. But now the question always arises: uh, Are these people delighted when uh, the sun rises bright and shiny on the day after the day that they predicted is to be the day of Armageddon? Like, oh, wow, boy, good old mankind, he survived again. Oh, am I glad. Oh, well, he smokes. Or do they say, curses? What's the matter with God? I'm going to have to go back and read the signs again. Obviously, I did not read the signs correctly. See, they all, this, is, this, is the, this is the out. Ah, we were given the wrong clues. We read them wrong. Now we have reread the clues, and we have decided the end of the world is coming on April 12, 1984. Now... <laughs> <laughs> this is a now the question always arises uh, with these people do they discuss their beliefs with others or do they hide are they secret the uh, uh, closet end of the worlders a good question uh, you know it's very hard i can just see the average end of the worlder sitting there. he works at some agency someplace and uh and uh, these things come up, you know. Even if you believe in the end of the world, you have to earn a living, and you, know, you got to work like everybody else. See, so here's a guy sitting in the in the uh, office there, and he's he's an end of the world. He believes the end of the world is coming January 10th, right? And uh, he's sitting there, and uh, the boss is having a sales meeting they have every Monday, and the time we'll say is January 8th, we'll say. And uh, he's sitting there in the meeting, and the boss says, "Now look," he says, "Cletus, uh, Cletus, I want you to call." BBDNO Monday. I want you to set up a lunch because uh, we got to do something about that Volvo account. And uh, set up. I'll tell you. You set up a lunch for next Thursday. Let's see. I have my calendar here. That's uh, January fourteenth. Uh, uh, set up. Uh, at that point, does he say, "Wait a minute, boss. The world is going to be over by then." I mean, uh, uh, come on. For God's sakes, uh, we're we're not going to make it past Tuesday. What are you talking about? Why don't you set it for Monday? We can have the meeting before the end of the world. And at that point, we can kill two birds <laughs> with one stone. I mean, if I may be... Or, or what does he do? I mean, I don't know. Well, now, you see, the, a part of the end of the world syndrome was explained to me by my friend Frank. You want to hear what Frank said about it? Okay. There's hardly a man alive, and Frank was one of them, uh, who remembers the event that uh, I'm about to... I'm about to uh, lay out in front of you. But this is not a new phenomenon. Ever since, of course, you know, the more primitive the, the uh, society or the beliefs of the people within that society, the more they tend to believe that any, anything that happens in the, uh, in the great, uh, you know, the great dome of the skies and the solar system above us is, is really basically a sign and a portent of... Uh, unrest by the gods 
Now, this is very common in in very primitive societies. That uh, any time, uh, a, a, for example, a, uh, an eclipse, the sun comes. They hurl themselves down and lay flat, and the end of the world is coming. You know, and they hurl their belongings into the great volcano. And they throw their wives in after it uh, to propitiate the gods, whatever it is. And uh, this is very common among very primitive societies. And uh, who is to say that we do not have a great underbelly, uh, a strain of primitive people living in our midst? I'm talking about primitive in the sense of their beliefs are very primitive. They may be very sophisticated on the other side of them. You know, they may sit there with eight-track stereos going full blast. <laughs> and, you know, but on the other hand, they're very primitive. The other side of them is so primitive that it makes your average walking-around native of a lost island in the far South Pacific look a little bit like Einstein on the loose. Oh, yeah. So, nevertheless, uh, this, uh, this is a well-established uh, thing. Now, you rarely get a chance to talk to people who did believe that the world was going to end and who, uh, you know, felt this very strongly, and then it turned out it didn't. They're very quiet after the thing fizzles out. The, 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 the Kahootek fearers will disappear almost without a trace. Uh, in fact, they've practically disappeared. I'd say in another two or three weeks, uh, they will go back into the woodwork, and uh, the next little thing that will occur, like there will be a uh, forecast of, let's say, uh, a, uh, a lunar, possibly a lunar eclipse. They'll come out briefly, but they don't come out so much for those anymore because there's been too many of them, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, the, it's the comet that really gets them. Comets have always gotten them. And uh, comets have gotten uh, primitive tribesmen since the very earliest days of recorded and prehistory. And hardly anybody's talking about this phenomenon. They always talk about Kahootek, but they're not talking about the effect on the primitive mind very interesting and uh, my friend Frank one night Frank you remember he's an old timer he's about 90 see and one night Frank said uh, he had this he had this kind of voice he used to talk like this he said well, uh, well I'll tell you he said uh, so yeah, I, said, I, 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 uh, I have been loving a long time he said you know one thing I've got I've got a good memory and he did he had an incredible memory he was one of the very few men who probably remembered every damn minute of his life about as close to a man with total recall as I've ever known. And in fact, he also had other curious eccentricities. I point out that people who tend to believe in uh, the comet's going to destroy the world often have other eccentricities. Maybe they have 38 cats that live with them, or 120 cats. Uh, <laughs> this is part of that whole thing. Now, that is an eccentricity. Uh, they, uh, they may, they may, on the other hand, uh, there's many different, uh, outward manifestations of it. But Frank, in this case, he had his own. And one night, we were sitting at lunch. Actually, it was dinner. I went out to dinner with him and my friend, the newsman. I didn't really know him too well at that point. But I was invited out to dinner. So we went out. There's a TV newsman. And, uh, we're sitting in this very elegant, uh, restaurant. And uh, we're ordering food, and Frank's sitting over there, and he's just sort of t telling stories. He was a fantastic storyteller. And he's just going along. And all of a sudden, he reaches down into his vest. He wears, you know, the old-type guys who always wear these gray vests. He takes out of his vest. He takes a little leather-covered notebook, and he proceeds to write in the notebook. Very, very 
carefully. He's writing, and as he's writing, he's looking down at the menu. And he's writing away there. Puts on his reading glasses, and he, he finishes writing, puts his notebook away, and I couldn't help it. I said, uh, excuse me, Frank, uh, what were you writing there? Oh, he says, I, I always keep a record. He said, I keep a record. Uh, it's uh, just one of those things I do. He said, I, ke I keep a record of every place I've ever eaten. In fact, I started to keep this record when I was just a boy. As a matter of fact, uh, I was maybe uh, eight or nine years old, and I began to keep a notebook, and I wrote in the notebook every meal that I had, what I had, uh, whether it was good or bad, whether I enjoyed it or not, and I particularly keep records. I have a record of every restaurant that I have ever eaten in, including hotel restaurants and diners and club cars on various trains, which I have used to travel across the country. I have a record of every meal that I have ever eaten since the year 1897. I said, good God almighty, you mean you have a record? Oh, yes, yes, I have an entire system. He says, not only that, but if the meal was in a restaurant, I write it in red ink. You notice I have two fountain pens here. Now, if the meal was at home or it was in a, a friend's house, I, I put it down in blue ink so that at a glance I can tell you just exactly where I had dinner and what sort of meal it was. I said, well, that's very interesting, Frank. Uh, why do you do that? Well, I, I, I just find that it's, uh, it's interesting, and I find that it's a helpful thing to have. Well, now, you can't argue with that. I couldn't keep pursuing it. But I did say this to him. I said, Frank, I said, uh, where do you keep your notebooks? I mean, you must have a hell of a lot of notebooks. Oh, that's a very good question. Here. He always carried with him a brown, old, battered briefcase. You know, the old kind that looked like a satchel? And he says, oh, right here. And he reaches down next to his chair, and he takes the satchel up, puts it in his lap, and he opens it up. I had never seen the interior of this satchel. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. Frank says, uh, yes, I keep all my notebooks down here. I have them all filed as to year. And I says, well, Frank, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Frank. Now, wait. I'm, I'm just going to try this thing. I said, Frank, where did you have dinner April 4th, 1908. Oh, there's no problem with that. And he's shuffling around in there. He pulls out a notebook and he goes, he just, he just, it's about eight seconds. He goes, oh, yes, very interesting. I had my, that, that was very interesting. I was on a visit to Bangor, Maine. And I had dinner there at the Great American Hotel, which has since been torn to the ground, and I believe they have an office building now there, the Great American Hotel. I ate in the Egyptian room. I said, you mean they had an Egyptian room in the Great American Hotel? Yes, indeed, it was decorated with sphinxes. I remember it well. And I had, on that occasion, I had sliced roast beef, medium rare, mashed potatoes, cream peas, and I had Indian pudding for a dessert that was very fine because you'll notice I put a star next to the Indian pudding. Well, he had <laughs> he had a record of every place he ever ate dinner in or lunch or any meal ever since he was a, a very small kid. I said, well, Frank, you know, wouldn't it have been great if, if, uh, if you could go back even further than that? You know, you could start. He says, I've often thought how many years I wasted 
that he did not keep this record until he was about 10. And so he had about a 10-year hiatus, you know, pablum, he could write down there. So uh, nevertheless, uh, he, he was that kind of guy. So we, we're sitting there having dinner, and, and uh, I said, Frank, I'm just curious. I said, Frank, uh, you're, you're, you're an old-timer. You have fantastic memory. What's the first time that you ever heard, well, just radio? What's the first time you ever heard radio? Oh, well, that's a very good question. He said, I'll never forget it. I was walking along Walnut Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a very fine town. I was walking along Walnut Street in Pennsylvania, and the year was 1922. And it was a warm day, and I had my, I recall, I had my coat off on that day, and I was walking along the street. In fact, I'll tell you exactly where I was going. I was on my way to Lock Obers where I was to meet a friend, and I was walking along Walnut Street when suddenly I heard this voice coming out of a window, and I noticed several other people were standing by the window watching and looking into the, into the room, and they were, there was a window there of an apartment. Well, I walked up to these people, and I said, Who is speaking in that room? And one of them said, Why, sir, that's the new device known as radio, and they are listening to Pittsburgh. And I said, by George, I listened to Pittsburgh, and there was a man there talking about the apple crop of that year. I said, oh, you recall even what he was, he was talking about the apple crop. Yes, he was giving some sort of a farm report, I recall, and he was discussing the apple crop of the forthcoming summer. I said, did you find it interesting, Frank? Well, I did, sir, I did it. I find it very interesting, and I also felt at that time that we had not seen the end of that newfangled device. And, of course, I was correct. I said, well, that's interesting, Frank. So, so then at that point, I said, Frank, uh, you must have other, other fantastic uh, memories. Things have happened to you. What, 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 in your estimation, is the most curious thing that you ever saw happen, that, uh, that uh, actually happened to you? And there was a pregnant pause. Frank was thinking about this. And he says, well, sir, yes, I, I, that's a very fair question. And I'd like to ask you two young whippersnappers if either of you have ever heard of Halley's Comet. Well, of course, you know, this is a historical thing. He says, yes, uh, we had heard of Halley's Comet. Well, I remember Halley's Comet very well, and I will tell you why. At that time, uh, I was uh, somewhat of a religious man. I've not since at that time, since that time, really pursued my religious interests the way I should have, and I know that I will eventually pay for it. However, at that time, I was a deeply religious man, and I belonged to a congregation, a sect, which uh, mostly met in uh, various homes and churches throughout the mainline area in Philadelphia. I said, well, what happened, Frank? He said, well, when Halley's Comet was predicted, our minister, a man named Ebenezer L. Martin, Dr. Ebenezer Martin, predicted that the end of the world was about to arrive. And being very impressionable in those days, I thought to myself, I wish to be prepared. And, of course, the, the congregation all asked the same question. What can we do? How can we prepare for the end of the world? And the Reverend Ebenezer Mountain said, You must give all of your earthly goods to my church. Give it all to our church because the Bible says that man upon the day of Armageddon must divest himself of all of his earthly earnings. I was very interested in this scene. I said, what did you do, Frank? He said, well, at that time, I was not a very wealthy man. In fact, I was working 
at a store where we mostly sold bread and rolls and some what we call today cold cuts. I believe you would call it a delicatessen. So I was not a wealthy man. But I went home that night and I withdrew from the bank $74, which I had saved up. And I took that $74 and I gave it to the Ebenezer Martin, Reverend Martin, along with all the other earthly goods that I had. And on the day of Halley's Comet, our entire congregation, our enti- a little less space music, please, our entire congregation assembled on a hillside outside of Villanova, Pennsylvania, just past Ardmore. You may see those hills back there now. But we stood on the hill and waited for the sun to come up because the Reverend Ebenezer Martin had predicted that the earth and the sun would collide upon the day of Halley's Comet. And the Reverend Ebenezer Martin had given us all white robes to wear. We were divested entirely of our earthly clothing, and we stood and watched the sun come up. Inch by inch it came up. And the Reverend Ebenezer Martin held a large silver cross high in the air, and he said, Oh God, we wish to be punished for our sins. Do thy worst with us. We are ready. Well, sir, there were over 1,200 of us on that hillside waiting for the end of the earth to come. By about 11 in the morning, it began to rain a little. Around 2 o'clock, people began to slowly wander back to town. I never went back to Ebenezer Martin's church. I said, Frank, you stood on a hillside wearing a gray or a white robe waiting for the end of the world to come? Yes, sir, I did. I said, you divested yourself of all your earthly goods? And you were ready to meet your maker? That is correct. So, well, Frank, must have been a little bit embarrassing when you went back in on your friends. Did they all believe this too? No, sir, they didn't. Well, Frank, did they laugh at you? You know, when the next day dawned bright and clear, and there you were, broke as a jackrabbit, not a cent in your pocket, even got rid of your shoes? Yes, they did laugh. I said, well, Frank, how do you feel about it now? Well, sir, I don't rightly know. I can tell you this, though. I personally was rather pleased that the earth did not end on that day. I was looking forward to a fine dinner that night, which we were going to have, a friend of mine. But so everywhere out there in the darkness, (laughs) they're lurking. And I have the tract to prove it. The prediction of the end of the earth. Comet Kahutek and Nineveh shall be destroyed. When they shall cry, peace, peace, then cometh sudden destruction. The Comet Kahutek's chaos will sweep evil America into the dustbin of history.
Kahutek came in like an atom bomb and went out like a little Chinese lady cracker. It's too bad. This is WOR, New York. You stay tuned for John Wingate. <laughs> 